Before I started avoiding packaged food, so now it's two and a half years since I filled up a load of garbage, avoided flying, and now I feel more connected to places than I did before. And everyone who hears it, it's like they all come back with the same stuff about what I can't do it because I had the same challenges that everyone else has. Everyone else, no one has ever said something like, but I have, and didn't say something that I also had to face. And my fridge has been unplugged for the past, it'll be eight months in, in a couple of weeks. And that was from reading about fermentation and how other places don't refrigerate as much. And my food is fresher now. I associate a fridge with keeping foods fresh, but without the fridge, I have to, like now when I get lettuce, I put it in water and it actually grows. <laughs> like it, not only does it stay fresh, but there's actually more of it the longer I wait. And fermentation makes stuff taste really delicious. And so when the standard way of looking at it is, what you said that they say, you had your chance to do your thing and mess up. Why don't we get that chance? But to me, I'm not there, so I'm not making choices for them. But for me, until recently, I would never have thought, why don't I... See, I don't want to say give stuff up because get more freedom. Like the more stuff I get rid of, the more freedom I feel like I have, the more freedom I do have. So to most people, the thought of giving, it's giving stuff up, it's depriving ourselves. But for me, it's not deprivation. It's joy, it's fun, it's freedom, it's connections. It's more time with family. And so a big message that could go across our world is there's joy to be had in simplifying, in not polluting, in stewardship, in considering others who gets affected by these things. And if... There's lots of people in the world who live non-industrialized, who are plenty happy and plenty healthy. That really helps. Then it's not just my personal experience. It's something that is available to everyone. And one of the big things when I read that the San, as best we can tell, lives something like the way they do now for 200, 300,000 years. And... It's been one one thousandth that time since the Industrial Revolution, and we're possibly facing a collapse, a population collapse on a global scale. I mean, that's something that scientists not trying to scare people are saying, look, that's just, it's very possible. Which tells me we have a lot to learn from them. And so more than I do in this area, and I don't know how much I'm speculating and just wishful thinking, or that we could really improve our lives by polluting less. Yeah. I like the way you're you're positioning that. I think as I'm sure you recognize what you now have learned maybe is not intuitive to others or people might think you're deluding yourself or they have different values or who knows. But you know, I guess what I've learned groups like the Chimane, the Kung, Haza, they're people. And I do think given the chance and opportunity, they would end up doing to the environment what we're doing. I mean, the Ache, these groups, there's been some formal study of like our folks, you know, implicitly conservationists and not really, no, all life is connected and important, but some species are more important than others because you eat them. Or if they hurt you, you want to kill them all, kill every snake and ask questions later. And a lot of th those kinds of groups, they're also living under very different conditions, very low population density. 
even if you killed every animal you encountered, if all you're working with is a bow and arrow, the extractive technology is not so great that you're going to be wiping out all the animals. In fact, these are arguments that conservationists have with native groups in a lot of protected areas over what can be hunted and not, what are the terms, what technology can be used, because I think there's sometimes there are these arguments that the conservationists think, oh, no, the native people are going to just kill everything in sight, whereas native folks might say, no, we just want to be able to do it more quickly and efficiently, but we know to preserve our environment. And I do think there's post-crisis mode for a lot of native groups. And so I think there is a lot of conservationism now that maybe didn't really exist as much in the past. Certainly, there's lots of ideologies. I mean, even the Chimane will have rituals and will bury the feet in the ground of animals they've killed, and it's respecting the animal guardians. But they kill the animal, right? <laughs> like it's, so it's not helping the animal at all. When you start thinking like that, I do think I'm more than lots of people. I really appreciate and value everything, all the people I've worked with and all the groups I haven't worked with. And their life ways and systems are very critical and should be preserved or, or not preserved. People should be able to have you know choice over how they live. And those are being deprived of lots of land rights and other things. Those are all serious, important issues. But do I think that the lessons to save us are like hidden in those groups? In some respects, I would say no, because they're living under very different conditions than we find ourselves in. And I don't think there's going to be a secret answer that is going to easily apply to our lives and solve our environmental crisis. I think we're kind of a pioneering colonizing species. We're good at sort of filling the space. And so thinking about conservation, and we discount the future so heavily that it's always going to be an uphill kind of struggle unless you can sort of build certain things in to make it compatible with our incentives. I mean, this is like, the nudging and behavioral economics and, you know, how do you, if I can put little gold stars on my gas bill and know that I'm using less gas than my neighbor, you can turn my status competition into something that's good for the environment. Like there's those little kind of tricks that take human nature as it is and try to work with it rather than thinking we can actually change human nature. And that's, that's the critical part. I do think there's going to be, there's only going to be so many Josh Spodeks out there in the world. And you, are, I think, are going to convince a lot of people. But I do think when you need to kind of convince millions of people, billions, billions of people, right? You not know, convince, lead. Lead, yeah, sure. I don't know. Why not just use every trick up possible? Or not trick, but you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I think environmentalism has long had this kind of issue about, appealing to people's the ideology and everyone can agree with but unless you pinch people's pockets or make it hurt maybe think about your kids and your grandkids those are more deeply motivating behavioral change than i think just appeals to what might be morally good and well, one of the big one of the big parts of leadership is role models and i think if you stop the average american on the street or lots of americans and ask them what do you think about people who live more sustainably? I think almost everyone would say it must suck for them. We got to help them live like us. 
And I think that your experience, I'm prone to interpret your experience and, and what others have observed of cultures that live more sustainably is that it's not a shit show, that it's it can actually be great. And many of them prefer that way of living. And we might too, if we cut back a bit. And yeah, we live right now in very dense communities um, in Manhattan. It's a very dense community here. And there's no way we could sustain it. But we could, there's no way we could sustain it without all the technology that we have. But we could, what's dawning on me, and I'm, please tell me if I'm missing something, is that if, imagine there were a bunch of people who avoided packaged food for a while and thought, oh, I like getting fresh more. And I like getting to know my farmer and buying in season and not getting stuff shipped from California and so forth. Then we might say, let's get a target of living more simply. And that's attainable. That's actually not just attainable, desirable. That it could be a great way of living that, okay, maybe the tsunami who are on the border, some will go one way, some will go the other, some will sit in between. That we could, it's not deprivation or sacrifice, that we might also choose to live mm -hmm. more sustainably and it could catch on. And do I have a story here that I can share with people that's honest, that says it's not, it doesn't mean you're going to die at 30. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have, I don't know, that you're going to get, I don't know all the fears that people have. Yeah. That it could be that we have a very bright future living without polluting. Unimaginable as it may seem, having grown up in this world, in this culture. Yeah, well, I think most of us only know kind of what we were exposed to, how we grew up, what comes easy, what comes natural. Otherwise, you have to learn it on your own or relearn. A group like the Chimane, there's such a rich cultural tradition. By age five, you're already more competent than most Americans in navigating the forest and just recognizing that the forest is... Yeah, it's your environment where you feel at ease, but you also, it's your supermarket, it's your hardware store, it's everything. And there's such a confidence that the Chimane have because they know, and this has happened, a flood wipes out their house and everything they own. Well, first of all, they move to higher ground and be like, well, during a flood, it's really easy to hunt. <laughs> so the hunting is good. And then they'll just make a new house and set up a new hearth and not cry over what, what they lost because they have that confidence and ability to basically recreate. And they didn't lose a whole lot of possessions because they don't have a whole lot. And so, and that confidence we lack, right? We don't know how to navigate the kind of world I think that you're talking about because it's in the past. And I do think that normalizing things takes time. And like, and I do think like you're saying, role models is really important. Early education is really important. Early ex and just exposure. And I mean, the same way that lots of cultural traditions increase over time is I think the way one kind of slowly can shift the culture and starting with easier things versus harder things. Maybe the, those are kind of small ways to tap into a more sustainable kind of lifestyle. So I'm taking away that it's not like it's a slam dunk that going to live more more sustainably is okay. It used to be a slam dunk that we would never want to do that, but it's not so much a slam dunk that it's a huge boon to do that either. There's lots of complications, but it's 
I guess life is challenging. I learned that great truths, when you actually say them, sound obvious and trivial. But that life is difficult one way, it's difficult the other way. You pick one, it's not like one of them is a panacea. And I'm sure that in 2018 or 2019, people would have said back then they had to live with all those plagues and, and pandemics. Then suddenly we got one and it's not like we're free of these things. And Well, yeah. And well, here, our thinking about sustainability, in many ways, the Chimane are victims of their own success. So when I mentioned that the Chimane have nine kids on average over their lifetimes and if mortality has declined, the current growth rate is about 3.8% growth rate, which translates to like a doubling time of about like 18 years or something like that. So every 18 years, the population is doubling. That's really immensely high population growth. So Chimane life as it is not, well, one, it couldn't have been like that for a long, long time or else we'd all be Chimane. In fact, I calculated once that the Chimane population will overcome the U.S. population in the year 2329, if nothing changes in either population. So clearly, the Chimani are going to be faced with this situation too, where they're running out of land and there's not enough animals to go around. There's not enough fish. And so I think the Chimani are going to be limiting their fertility. There's already the beginnings of that. And so, yeah. Have they been around, what, 10,000 years? Who knows? I guess in what form, as far as it's hard to know how long, but yeah, they're let's sure. Let's say 10,000 years. They must've been living their numbers. Their population must've been stable for most of that time. It couldn't have been growing at three, 4% yeah. for very long. So yeah. how did they before keep it? Did they, not just them, but indigenous cultures everywhere. I'm imagining there's a lot of infant mortality. There's going to be, I thought, in other places, there was spacing of babies by breastfeeding and diet and exercise led to right. less, fewer children per woman. Yeah, so this is, so I've actually studied this exact question. Uh, in fact, it even has a name. It's called the population foraging paradox that it's not just the Chimane. The Chimane are an ex, like an extreme, 3.8%, but the Ache, the Hadza, Almost every group of hunter-gatherers and small-scale horticulturalists, herders, they're all mostly growing at fairly fast rates. Even a 1% rate doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's a doubling time of like 69 years to double the population. So on a large time scale, that's really fast. And you're exactly right. The paradox is like, well, how do you reconcile that with the fact that over long stretches of human history the growth rate had to be zero on average, right? Because the population only really skyrocketed, you know, in the last four or 500 years and mostly in the last several hundred years. And so basically what the short answer is that it very well could be that in the past, fertility was a little lower and mortality was a little higher than what we observe in hunter-gatherers that are around today. But they couldn't have been off that much unless it... If that were the only answer, the fertility would have to be lower than we've ever observed in any hunter-gatherer population, or mortality would have to be higher than we've ever observed in hunter-gatherers. And so the answer, I think, is that we've just had recurrent booms and busts. Populations come and go. 
things are really good. You see big increases in populations and then they crash. And so when you're tied- More famine, pestilence, things like that? Yeah, things like that. I mean, those are particularly bad when you're monocropping intensive agriculture, but even hunter-gatherers that have fairly diverse diets, animals can suffer these predator-prey cycles and their abundances are changing, let alone like thinking about raiding and warfare. And so populations kind of ebb and flow in terms of their dynamics. And so that had to have been basically a larger part of our longer human history. And one implication of that is it's been called like a sawtooth pattern. Populations are growing and then crash, growing and crash. The drops are steep. So it looks kind of like a, like the edge of a saw. And what that means is that most of the time populations are growing, except if you catch them in that crash. And what it kind of implies a little bit about human psychology is that maybe this is the differences in who we are. A lot of people are oriented towards growing that populations are conditions of growth. And some of us, Josh, you might be focused on that crash and you're really you know, attuned to that aspect of our human history. And you know, it's a mix of people. You need the Joshes, but then you also need the folks who are gonna help rebuild once after populations crash. And so that, that's the open question. And it could just very well be that now under modern conditions, we're seeing less of the busts and more of the booms. And so that's why almost all these populations tend to be growing now. I guess if it's happening on a bigger and bigger scale all the time, then now it's going to be happening on a global scale. There could be a big drop. Well, I guess the issue now, right, is not population growth has slowed down quite a bit. But it's really about the the average consumption per consumer, right? You know, it doesn't matter that even if our population, if every woman has less than two kids, yeah, the numbers will go down, but our consumption is too high, right? And so that's what, I guess, in in the end, what really matters is population growth taking into account how much every individual is, is consuming. And so it does come back to your bigger question about, how do we reduce the amount of consumption per consumer? Or can everyone get the view that I have, that I've learned through experience, that lowering consumption improves life, not wrecks it? Yeah. And the population, the way I've heard of it is the, the population, the number of people and the consumption per person, the area rectangle depends on both the base and the height, not just one. So if everyone is living sustainably, then I guess my net effect was zero. Then I guess we could have lots and lots and lots of people. But if the net effect is positive and nature needs a bit, needs some space and time to undo what I do, then the population can get too big. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't look at just one of those things. Well, yeah. And I guess the, the trick, we're always looking over our shoulders to see what our neighbors are doing. And it's one of those things like, you know, it's great if there's a lot of people that are living sustainably. But then if they get swamped out by all the people who aren't, that can be a, a bit demotivating, I think, to, or to a lot of people. And so this is where you know, we start thinking about how do you change systems of live, like in ways that imagine if the only game in town was to live as you're talking. And so it's a default as opposed to an active choice that people have to opt into. And, you know, I think that's true about physical activity and all the kinds of things we talk about lifestyle for living a healthy life. 
it's really odd that we live in a time where almost everything is a, a list of things not to do, right? Like don't overeat, don't eat this thing, don't eat that. Don't just lay on the couch. You have to move around more, go to the gym. Like these kinds of things that are burdens because we set up our living situations like that, that we don't have sustainable, like living in a way that you need to walk to work. You can walk to work. You need to walk to get your food. And just through carrying out your daily tasks, you've already hit your 15,000 steps and don't need to go on a treadmill. And imagine you go and lived in France for a little bit. Going to the equivalent of a 7-Eleven, it's amazing the quality of fruits that are at the 7-Eleven compared to like going to some great farmer's markets here that the quality freshness isn't even as good. And the French don't think it, well, they do value food quite a bit in my experience, but they've things are set up in a very different way. That's the default. And how do we move large numbers of people, large cities in that direction? Those these are all the million dollar questions that we're not going to settle in any podcast, but <laughs> one hour podcast, but you're doing the good fight. I champion your cause. And I have to say, when I first heard your thing, I was like, no way. I can't believe that. I was like, what was it like a pound and a half of trash or, or something? <laughs> like I got, it's out of view right now, but my bag over there, it's like a, it's a tote bag. It's a canvas tote bag that I got at some event. And since I compost the wet stuff, it's just dry stuff. So I just put it, I don't need a plastic bag. Well, you know what? So part of the origins of my, even my field, the things I study behavior. And so, you know, like every five and 10 minutes, like I'm recording what people are doing, who they're with and whatnot. And that's how we know what people do on a day-to-day basis. And the thing that would be great, put the GoPro on your head and go about your daily life. Let people see what it's like and how it is to live and not generate so much trash and live where the fridge is not plugged in. Because you say it and you say it's great for you and makes you happier. But I think most people don't understand the mechanics of how that works. What does that look like? Yeah, I keep doing it. And everyone's telling me I should be posting all this stuff. And one, I don't like social media. I haven't been on yet this year. If I get a link, sometimes I'll follow it to see a picture. But it's distasteful to me and to share it like to like you're right and that's why i invite people like everyone listening to this right now including you but including just a random listener you're invited to come over to have some of my famous no packaging vegan stew i love cooking it i love making it and we can go to the farmer's market actually now talk about food being cheap i now volunteer there's all these 15 minute delivery places here 10 minute delivery places they're like ghost stores. They're, it's a store that stocks with all the stuff and they get rid of a lot of stuff at the end. Of, actually, all places get rid of stuff at the end of the day. So I volunteer with this group that picks up the stuff that they were going to get rid of and I take it to the community center where anyone can pick it up. So I'm saving it from the garbage. And the rule is that the volunteers get to take uh, some of the stuff. So this morning I went to this one place and I picked up, they had like 10 or 15 loaves of bread. No, maybe 10 loaves of bread. And then like 20 or 30 avocados. So I kept four or five avocados. Like I don't buy avocados because they're not, they don't grow around here. Right. So now I got all these really great avocados and <laughs> I feel like I'm foraging in, <laughs> in some kind of weird urban way. And yeah, I mean, there are these kind of growing movements of freegans and urban foragers and things like that. I think it's great. I use examples of that in my hunter gather class to basically 
say, there are many aspects of our consumer behavior that aren't terribly different, and you could actually live. One student actually did, did some spearfishing in the ocean, go to some gardens, you know, and it's not, depending on where you live, and here in, in Santa Barbara, there's lots of figs, and they're really good and nutritious. It's not, in some places, it's not that difficult to live, I think, as you're saying. Well, I'm not spearfishing. Yeah. <laughs> I do get, now here I, I gotta be careful. I hope not too many New Yorkers hear me, but there's Juneberries are gonna be in season pretty soon and they are delicious and they're incredible. I know in the middle of Central Park where there's a mulberry tree. Mm. No one knows it's there. I mean, it's in the middle of Central Park. And I go up there and I just go to town with that thing. But yeah, yeah living with, some things are like trivially simple. And here's, I gotta share a story. This reporter did a story on me. And she comes back and says to me, I want to try this. I want to live like, I want to reduce a lot. And she says, I got this Keurig machine at home, a coffee maker. And all people, everyone who uses a Keurig is they're all distressed because they know that they're throwing away these little cartridges. And they know somewhere there's some aluminum ones that they could possibly reuse. And she goes, I don't know what to do about this Keurig. What, what do I do? I don't drink coffee. So I tell her, look, I don't drink coffee. I don't know how to, I, I solve the problems that I've solved in my life, but I haven't solved other people's problems because I'm not living their lives. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you the process because the way that I stopped buying packaged food was first I analyzed and planned. And then I realized, because that's what school taught me. And then I realized that it wasn't getting me anywhere because six months had passed and I didn't do anything. I just said, look, I'm going to start right now. I'm going to go two weeks. I'm going to go a week and I'm not going to die. I'm going to figure it out. And I figured it out. Just face the problem and solve it. So I said, here's what I recommend is just don't use the Keurig. Just don't use it. Here's what you're not going to die. Now, I don't know what the solution is going to be, but I think it's going to be one of two things. One is because this is what's happened with me is possibly you will just stop drinking coffee. Okay, problem solved. Maybe, and if you don't, you'll find some other solution, some way of making coffee because Keurig machines haven't been around forever and people, drink people have been drinking coffee for a long time. I said, I don't know what it'll be. Maybe a French press. And she goes, oh yeah, actually a friend of mine gave me a French press uh, a little while ago. It's sitting in my closet. So here's how not to stop using a Keurig. Keep using it. To stop is to stop. So I feel like I'm just doing what anyone, if they decided, like unplugging the fridge. I just read this article that said people, much of the world, they don't use refrigerators. They ferment and buy differently. And I thought, okay, I first started thinking, I wonder if I could do that. And I sensed this analyzing planning and I knew where that would go months and months of analyzing and planning. So I just walked over and unplugged the fridge. And that meant I had until the stuff melted to figure out what to do with it. And I did. And I'd rather people just did that than me. I feel like every time that I tell people, here's what I do, they always respond, oh, you can do that, but I can't. And it's never for a reason that really that makes me special, makes them special. It's, I think it's their addiction speaking. Well, yeah, I think... One good thing to come out of the pandemic, which feels odd to even say, was just how much less air travel there was, right? And so talk about the real positive environmental impact, but the lack of flying, I think, just made a huge difference. And I remember I've gone on those websites where I try to calculate my carbon footprint and all that stuff. And the flying is what all the other stuff adds is like minuscule compared to the flying. And one thing, it's not just that, oh, well, there is a blip where people realize like what well, didn't fly. But I, I feel like at least 
amongst myself and other people I know, it's like, you know what, you know, Zoom isn't great, but I would much rather do Zoom participation in a conference, maybe not every conference, but let's say two thirds of them. And if everyone does it, that can make a huge difference in the environmental footprint if fewer people are flying, let alone in terms of the equity aspects. Imagine like all of a sudden conferences are on Zoom. People all over the world can go to those that never would be able to go to before because the costs are just too prohibitive. And so that's one of those things that, you know, maybe before most people would have said, no, I have to fly. I have to go here and there for this, that, and the other. And it's like, no, you don't because you didn't do it during the pandemic and you're still here, hopefully, right? And things are still moving along. And so now once the pandemic, I hope, subsides, I hope there's some residual, like, you know what? We don't need to do those things that are massive environmental detriments. And so, yeah, that's kind of like the Keurig example, but I can't really relate to that because I need my coffee. I don't use Keurig. I do like French press and I do like just even just drip. But see there where I think I turn into a ritual. That's my thing. Every morning is the, the making of the coffee. It's like sacred. And if all I did is put a Keurig and slop it, that, there's not really much joy or meaning in that. And so I actually feel the coffee drinking is more infused with more meaning because the process itself is deeper. This is something I've observed. And the less that I pollute, the more that I do things that are like rituals. And here's what tends to increase. I'm doing more time with family, more athletic things, more food preparation and gathering. And I feel like the more that I learn about the indigenous cultures, I feel like I'm moving that direction. And a lot of things become more ritualized, that they feel much more, I don't know how to put it. I'm getting value out of things that I used to think, I want to do this faster. Like the opposite of McDonald's isn't not having enough time for something else. It's spending time with people preparing the food and getting to know the farmer. And people think that's a luxury. And yet people who earn no money whatsoever, yeah. that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And when I, like that documentary about the Hadza that I had Bill Benenson, the producer on. Oh, yeah. And they, there's a scene where they're singing and I wasn't, and, and there's scenes where they're like making clothes and there's scenes where they're like cutting hair. And so the singing, I listened to it and I think like one of the things I did to reduce my pollution was I started singing turn off everything and sing instead. And for someone who sang nothing but happy birthday, like happy birthday was all I sang almost my whole life. And I was really scared to do it. But then eventually I got to the stage where I could go out in Washington Square Park and sing. No one's listening to me, and I'm, but I'm still freaked out. I know it's New York and I can do whatever I want, but I still, it freaks me out. And so one of the main things that I learned in practicing singing was how much singers who sound like they just go out and sing and like, I hear Rihanna, I'm like, oh, she just sings. No, she worked really hard for it. So then I hear the Hadza singing, and I know that they didn't practice like Rihanna with teachers and so forth, but I would definitely listen to them in a concert if someone put it together. And I realized that they live in a way that creates, I'm sure that they have drama. I'm sure that they have poetry. I'm sure that, have, I know that they have paintings. And I feel like that's what, we would have more of. Like if someone says, what would happen if we cut out all this pollution? I think the natural response is 
infant mortality is going to shoot up. But I think what's more going to happen is culture and sports are going to become more participatory instead of watching it from a couch. Yeah, I guess one needs to be deliberate about that, right? Because you know, remember, remember the, the, just the promise of labor-saving devices. It's not like we use that time to increase our leisure and do all these things you're talking about. Maybe some people do, but other people just fill it up with more work, right? And so replacing one type of work with another type of work. And so, yeah, I think that the kind of slowing down and evaluate it's kind of the thing where like you know, I often think about I kind of obsess over you know I'll read obituaries and kind of like Woody Allen he used to say I think he would first read the Woody, the obituary just to make sure he wasn't in it <laughs> but reading like final words of people and such and no one ever regrets oh I should have worked more or I, I should have flown to more places or done something like that no it's, it always comes back to these basics about enjoying life about family about friends about community about the meaning of life and the meaning of life is never being related to some particular purchase or having a big house fancy house or a nice car or any of those kind of materialistic concerns it always comes back to these same things that the Ache, the Haza, the Chimane all talk about as well. And I think that's why the Chimane could say, look, you look poor because you don't have a family. Or if I, I tell them I only have one sister, one sibling. God, that's how poor are you? Where do you go when you need this or you need that? Or where do you go? It doesn't make any sense. And in many ways, that's even my Bolivian friends who are not Chimane, but live in the cities and their lifestyle is more like yours or mine, things are different enough that family is all around and family is still really important. And when, when one good friend of mine came to visit in the U.S. and he's like, I don't get it. You go move where the jobs are and your families aren't there. Like that wouldn't even be really much of an option or, or we would never make that choice to, you know, wonder you have depression and loneliness and social isolation. Look at the sacrifices, the choices that people have made in the interest of chasing, you know, the good life, that good life, maybe not be the good life. And yeah, I think these are the kinds of trade-offs that I think we're facing right now. And a lot of us realize these, maybe these choices weren't the best ones. You don't realize that until it's too late. Man, would you be willing to pick up here again next time to talk more? Because I feel like you are speaking with the knowledge and experience beyond, like when you say things like that, it's not just like you have seen the other cultures and you've studied them. Okay. We've talked about a lot of different things. <laughs> and yeah, some things are really, you know, I've thought a lot about these issues about environmentalism and sustainability and even me living more simply for much of my life. I've never done gone to the lengths that you have. I almost feel like that takes us, and this is, this is probably your point. It doesn't take a superhuman level first, of sacrifice yeah. and all that stuff and i know when you started off it was all and then and then the questions would be like now my excuse would be like well i've got kids and i've got this that like how do this stuff might be good for yourself but how do you deal with this how do you scale up and there's all these kinds of you know things that are excuses but maybe it's not all or nothing right there's little choices little things that people every little bit matters and that's where i do think well the flying was just one obvious way that you can make a big difference in terms of your global footprint without doing a whole lot else.
you're saying make little changes, but what I've really discovered is a big difference is not big versus little, but intrinsic versus extrinsic. If you find out, if you act on something for personal, if I tell you, don't pollute because Bangladesh is going to be underwater, unless you've been to Bangladesh and have some ties there, that's really meaningless to you. But if I ask you what the environment means to you and find out what's inside you, and what's inside you is different than what's inside anybody else because your experience with nature is different and unique. But if I then invite you to act on your motivation, what matters to you, you'll do it for reasons that you'll find it purposeful, you'll find it meaningful. And that's what I do with most of my guests is I walk them through this process of sharing what the environment means to them, invite them to act on that. And when they do, they come back a second time and they almost always do more than I, they said they would. And they almost always connect with people in some way that they hadn't expected. And so when I ask them, do you want to keep doing it? They often say yes. I hope that by doing this enough with enough people of renown and influence that it'll catch on, that people will find role models, that people will find, instead of little things adding up, like I'm not going to argue with people who say, if enough people do little things, it adds up. Maybe. But if you do something and you like it and you do it more, Mm -hmm. Then it gets big. And if you share it with people because it's joyful, big things that people share, that adds up. That's my game. So when people say they're going to do these little things, I'm like, I'm not going to stop you. But if you, right now we're so disconnected from nature, from you know walking among trees in solitude, from being able to hear the waves lapping and hear no sound from people around, to look up, at, to just go out and pick a, a piece of fruit. We don't have that anymore. And so we don't know what we're missing. And so it's this abstract thing for a lot of people that they're trying to protect. And the younger you are, the more likely you have really, I mean, I, something like a, a billion or two billion people are living in favelas and so forth that have no access to anything. So they have no idea what, the, increasingly we have no idea what we're trying to protect. But when we have that deep connection, I think that it's a different story. That's my game. That's why I said I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. I can't convince you that you care about nature, mm -hmm. but I can unearth, uncover what's being suppressed and denied by our culture. Right. Well, yeah, and I think, and for all those people that feel disconnected from nature, like living in cities, you still might value clean water. and. You might not care what's involved to get clean water, but you want clean water. And so maybe you're willing to pay a price or it's often been the case, right? If you made the cost of things actually adjusted to not just the production costs, but the kind of environmental cost and impact, certain things would be a lot more expensive. And that would change what people do in many ways. And I know it's a very sort of materialistic like we're just little computers responding to costs and benefits. But it's another way forward. I think we got, again, there's people who only respond to incentives like that. And there's other people who don't need those kinds of incentives. But I don't think we can even expect people to appreciate nature in the way that not everyone has that intrinsic. And it's like here, it's like people pay good money to send their kids to go on camping trips and do the kinds of things that like schools in the cities aren't doing. And it would be great if that could be done more and people could develop that sense of 
to develop an intrinsic valuation of nature. And so that's another approach, I think, that I guess just doing it alongside these other ways, we need every possible which way to, I think, reach sustainability. Well, we've been doing a terrible job of stopping talking. <laughs> I'm enjoying the conversation. Yeah. So I propose stopping here and maybe we'll talk a second after we stop recording to see if we do another episode. All right. Anything I didn't think to ask that to close with? I'm scared of talking for another two hours. So many open loops. Yeah. But uh, no, I think a lot of what we were talking about is it was certainly beyond my expertise. I know people who work with hunter gatherers who are as consumptive as any other American. In fact, in some ways, I think they might think it justifies their behavior because realizing that people are the same everywhere and they could be very adamant, like protective of indigenous rights, but that doesn't translate to the fact that they might have a Jaguar, you know, for a car and those kinds of things. And so people are weird. We have lots of different competing motives and inconsistencies that yet we still, you know, can walk forward with two legs. Yeah. So all that was to say that I think I was, a lot of what we were talking about was just me talking as a human observer and being a human in the world, not so much as someone who carries any special insights just from working with different groups around the world, but happy to contribute to the conversation if you think it's useful in any way. Well, I found it very useful. People are weird. <laughs> We're complex. A lot of what you said at the beginning, I think it was a lot of your specialty and your observations and things you've reported on, researched. And at the end, just your thoughts, but informed. And Michael Gervin, thank you very much. Yep. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.